verses 1 through 7. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her two daughter-in-laws, or with her daughter-in-laws, to return from the country to, of Moab. And she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people, his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Verses 15 through 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. We are in part nine of our series on biblical justice. And um, we've gone through so much. But um, let me just, just, uh, just hit two points, especially for any of you who, are, who haven't been here. Um, justice is first, it's a deep attribute of God. It's his love. It's his love. It's not simply just some abstract idea. And justice is specifically... Um, when God, when justice is mentioned in the Bible, it's specifically God has in mind certain people who are especially vulnerable in the world. And so in our 21st century, we tend to think about it as some kind of like moral law of fairness, and we immediately think about politics. But when God thinks about it, it doesn't mean that there isn't an issue of politics, but that isn't primarily the focus in the Bible. Primarily the focus of the Bible is for those people in a sinful and in a fallen world who will fall through the cracks and who will be hurt by the world. And there's three camps of people that the Bible is just perennially again and again um, concerned about. And those are the fatherless. And we spent several weeks talking about the fatherless. Second is the widow. And last week, I started transitioning to talking about what, what do the fatherless and widows have in common, and they are without belonging in the world. That's what I talked about last week. And third camp of people are what the Bible calls the sojourner, or I, I would like to call them the, the minority or the outsider. And today, I want to start by talking about biblical justice, justice for the widow, justice for the widow. And um, it's actually... There's a whole book devoted to it. And if we're going to talk about the Bible's take on just, it's so important in the Bible, there's a whole book that really talks, that tells you the story of not just one, but two widows. And, and uh, our brother read the, the beginning portion of that book, and that is the book of Ruth. And what I want to do in today's uh, message is to unpack, I'm, I can't go through the whole book, but I'll unpack um, this beautiful book, it's only four chapters. If you've never read it, I urge you to go home and read it. It's only four chapters. You can read it. <laughs> it's really easy. It won't, it won't take you long to read it. It's a very compact narrative. It's a tremendously beautiful narrative. Um, but it's talking about something incredibly painful. It's talking about um, widowhood. And what I want to do is I'm going to spend the majority of time just trying to help you to see how the Bible begins to sh uh, sh uh, give us, shed light on this subject. And I'm not going to talk as much today about like 
Some of you may think, okay, this is, okay, with how the Bible is, can you just, just hold on and like, I'm going to, I'm just going to just spend only a brief little period of time um, talking about widowhood in the general and especially how it's going to start to pertain to today. And then I want to get into that more next week, okay? So let's do it this way. Part one, the plight of the widow. Part one is the plight of the widow. And we're going to look at it through the, the book of Ruth. Part two, it's going to be very tight. And I'm not going to spend as much time in part two. Really, part two is just a little preview for next week, okay? <laughs> part two is the vulnerability of women in the world. Um, the way women are vulnerable back then aren't exactly the same way women are vulnerable today. But um, there are ways in this world, in this fallen world, women are vulnerable all times, all places. And so what the Bible calls a widow, um, today we have to think a little bit, I think, not differently, but we have to think about how the Bible sees it and then kind of and then apply it for the 21st century. I just want to give you a little preview of that in part two. The vulnerability of women in the world. And then part three, the ultimate bridegroom redeemer. There's going to be, in the Bible, there is a, an idea of, of someone who becomes a husband. It's called the kinsman redeemer. And it's a pointer to one who is even greater than that, a greater kind of redeemer. And those of you guys probably know who I'm talking about, but uh, the ultimate bridegroom redeemer is part three. Okay? All right, let's get into it. Part one, the plight of the widow. Um, let's just get right into the, into the passage, okay? And, uh, and if you um, don't, you know, didn't grow up in the church and don't believe in Jesus, we're, we're going to read uh, an ancient story. This is taking place... Um, this is taking place in the time of the judges, before the kingship of Israel. So if you read this you know, in the Bible, you know, it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. And so just roughly, chronologically, there's no king. There's no king in the, in the land um, because that institution of the king for the land of Israel has not been, has not been put forward yet. And Israel is, isn't really a coherent, in a sense, isn't entirely a coherent nation. It's a series of tribes. And the law of the land, it's more like tribes and of, of certain places. Um, and it doesn't, it's, it's, it's not like we, there's a central government of, of care. I want you to think, just keep that in mind as I talk about this. Now, the second thing I want to say is some of the things we're going to talk about today, if you didn't grow up in church, are going to sound a little weird because we're talking about an ancient culture. And I'm going to do my best to try to unpack that for you and then to help you to see how God does justice, what God cares about in a story such as this, okay? So let's get, get into it. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, that's before they were kings, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah, a man of Bethlehem in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay? So, now, just, let's just go time out for a sec, okay? <laughs> Let me just, just right here, let's already go time out. Let me just say this a little bit differently. In the days when there was no king and no central government, and there was a really horrible recession, and there were no jobs, and businesses were being closed down. And people um, were lining up for food. Does that sound um, weird? <laughs> when I say there's a famine, in the 21st century, we don't tend to worry about famine, especially in America. But you guys know what a recession is like. And you certainly know, what a uh, you know, you know that there's such a thing as depression. I don't know if you know this, but um, um, two times a month, right here in our parking lot, uh, it's, there's a ministry that's, that's run by the, the church that hosts, you know, our, our, um, you know, our campus, Trinity Church of Sunnyvale. It's called the Food Pantry. And um, the line for the Food Pantry just, it just goes around the block. <laughs> and this is a very precarious time economically. Um, much worse. A famine is that and much worse. Okay, so these people leave in a time of great need and they, um, and so the next goes. And a man... 
of Bethlehem in Judah went to emigrate. And let me say, let's, let's use this term. There's immigrate, I-M-M-I, which means come from another clan, you know, and you are an immigrant. There's immigrate, E-M-I, that means to, to go to another country. So they, these guys are, they immigrated, E-M-I, to Moab, okay? The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathites is actually apparently the name of the people before it became called Bethlehem. So to say, it's, it's almost synonymous to say they're from Bethlehem, okay? So don't get too hung up on that strange word. Um, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Let's just stop for a moment, okay? I want to make this not feel so strange. So you begin to think, oh, this is an ancient word. What does it have to do with what is so boring? It's, it's so not boring, <laughs> It is so today. So what if the man's name isn't, some, isn't his Jewish name like Elimelech, but what if he had a Chinese name? Or what if he had an Indian name? And he had two sons. And the economy where he's from in China or in India wasn't good. And they moved somewhere else. In this case, they went to the other side of the river. Back then, going to the other side of the river, it's far. And if you go to the other side of the river, you go into another country. All of a sudden, the, the people, the culture, the language, probably their skin color, it all changes. Their clothes, their food, everything changes. And so, you know, when you hear this story, Elimelech, Naomi, you know who they are? They're our neighbors. <laughs> They're not somebody else. They're not somebody else from several thousand years ago. You know who they are? They're just like people who come to our city. Just like them. They came from somewhere else. Maybe they came from Mexico or from Vietnam or from China or from India. And they come to a place where the economy is better. And that's the story. That's what the story is beginning. So I really want to just help you to think about the, the, so many people, you read the Bible, it kind of, you, you, it feels weird because it has like these foreign names and it paints a picture of a world that we don't understand, but you do understand. That's the thing I want you to under, you want you to try to get, like, you get this. This isn't a weird text. It's completely alive. It's utterly relevant. So let's move on. He had two sons. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. How about that? So you have this man, he's from Vietnam, or he's from China. Um, you know, it doesn't say exactly why he died. Uh, even in this really modern day age where um, we have all this modern medicine, uh, a number of years ago, when my wife and I we lived in Philadelphia, we knew um, we met you know this this uh, Korean American couple, and they were Christians. They they sent their kids to the same preschool, which is actually our church's pre. Our church was mostly uh, uh, you know was mostly white, and some black folks, and then you know a couple of Koreans like us, all right. And this couple, they they lived not too far away, and they sent their kids to the same preschool, which is you know by our church. And um, we had them over for lunch one day. And they, they were wonderful. They, they believe in Jesus. They were really similar to us. The kids were similar age. And we hit it off right away. And, um, and then two years later, um, the husband was diagnosed with stomach cancer. <laughs> Three years later, he was gone. <laughs> it happens. It does not matter how modern your medicine is. Elemelics are real. They're your friends, they're your neighbors, they're your co-workers. They're in our city, okay? Um, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Melon and Kilion died. Wow. 
So you have these people, they're living in a foreign land. It's, it's remarkable. The book is about a widow, um, but it's not just about any widow. It's about a widow who is also an immigrant, a minority in a foreign land. And so she not just, just didn't just lose her husband. Then she had two sons. Both of them got married. And then they died. So we aren't even, you know, we're five verses into this book and we have three widows. That's what we're talking about here. So the woman was left with her two sons. And her husband was left, was left without her two sons and her husband. So, um, let me try to paint this again. So, she comes from China. She raises up two sons. Maybe she gave them American names, right? And so, you know, in the old country, you know, she's got, you know, Chinese names. But in the new country, you know, she named one John and one David. Those sound like good names. John and David. And so, um, and then they grow up and they went off to college. And John marries a white girl. Nice, pretty, white American woman. She's blonde and, you know, they met in college. And David married a nice Vietnamese gal who grew up in San Jose. I don't know if you know San Jose is one of the, it's like, it's like one of the best, it's like one of the, the largest Vietnamese communities in America. All right. Let's say he met her a little after college. And then they somehow, didn't say exactly how, they both died. I don't know how that could happen, but it can. What you have here is just an unbelievably painful story. And immediately, what you have is this question of how are they going to make it? These three women. So somehow they get news that in the old country, things are better. That there's food. The way they put it was like, God is providing food for, you know, her pe- for his people. That's Israel. Got to go back to the other side of the river. It's far away. God is providing food is another way of saying the economy over there is a lot better. God is providing food is that the land is doing better. The weather is doing better. The, the famine wasn't destroying the people and people weren't starving. So he said to go back. And so what she does do, and, and, and just for the sake of time, you know, I skipped over. She does is she basically tells both her daughter-in-laws, one is named Orpah and one is named Ruth, go back. Go back to your families. Go back. Go back. And she says, what can I do? Can I, like, have, get married again and then have kids again? And then you're going to marry them? Because that would be the normal way. I want you to understand something about the way this culture works. It's not an individualistic type of society. How does marriage happen in this society? Marriage happens, it's kind of, it's probably kind of a quasi-arrangement, if not a straight-up arrangement. Marriages happen family to family. It's still like that in much of the world. It's not like that in America, obviously. It's still kind of like that in America in some families, but it's definitely like that here. And so she says, I don't have any more husbands to give you. So they weep. And apparently she must have been a loving mother-in-law. Orpah, she goes, she leaves. She goes back to her, her family. But Ruth, Ruth won't. She says no, right? And here's what she says. Um, so wait, just, just pick up again, verse 15. She says, see your sister-in-law. This is what Naomi's saying to Ruth. That's Orpah. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister. Do this, do the same thing. Right? But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, you know, where you dwell, where you hang your hat, where you make your home, That's where I will make my home. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You know what she's saying? She's saying, I'm swearing covenant under Yahweh. That's the name here. Under Yahweh. The Lord is Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me. You know what she's saying? It's an extraordinary thing she's saying. She's saying, in this world, you have nobody. You have nobody. But you don't have nobody. You'll have me. <laughs> That's what she's saying. That's what this daughter-in-law is saying. Not her daughter. Her daughter-in-law. Not even the same ethnicity. They probably have different skin color. Who even knows if their language, you know, if they, if they, if they speak broken, <laughs> broken language to each other, just like just in our homes today. And their daughter-in-law is making a covenant to the Lord saying, you have nobody, you're a widow, even though she herself is a widow, and saying, if you go out to the world, you will have somebody, it'll be me. Let me say a little something about this. It's just a, such an extraordinary thing that a Moabite person will say this. I think, you, it doesn't exactly say this in the Bible. There's an inference that God's people, Israel, that they know that this is God's demands upon God believes in justice for the widow. Now, now let me just, just take the time out here for a second. What is the normal practice and what, what is considered a widow in, 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 the, in the land of Israel? A widow is somebody who's, it's not just somebody who loses her husband. In America, that's kind of, okay, you lose your husband, now you're a widow. Okay, the definition is really simple. The widow is a little bit more, almost, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a desperate place than that. Because the normal thing is if you lose your husband, what you'll do is you'll go back to your own clan. You'll go back to your own clan. And then your father and your brothers will then, you know, can take care of you. And, you, and some of you are going like, well, it's just so, you know, it's so patriarchal and it's so man-centered. And, you know, why do the women have to do that. Um, and I want you to just, just stop for a moment before you, you, know, you get your 21st century feminist ideas and decide to judge the text or decide, judge um, their ancient practices. The reason is because economics is based on the land. Let me just put it this way. Economics is based on the land. Do you understand what that means? Where does your food come from? Where does your wealth come from? It depends on who owns the land, who can till the land, who can make the land fruitful. If you have land, you can grow crops. If you have land, you can grow cattle, sheep, goats. If you don't, you don't have much. Now, let me just ask you a very simple question. Who takes care of land? Who generally takes care of land? If you look around the whole world, and if you get all of history, you know whose job that is? The dudes do that job. It's a man's job. It's a man's job to fight off wolves. If the wolves show up and, you know, want to eat up your goats. It's a man's job to physically break his back and to be out there no matter how hot or how terrible or how bad the bugs are. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if he's feeling like it or not. Get up there and go do the work. And I'll tell you something else that it's also why the men do this work. Because it's not like if you're rich and you have your land all fenced off, that, you know, your neighbors are just going to be really, really nice. And they're going to be like, oh, that's Joe's land over there. <laughs> I'm not going to walk on his land because I'm a nice guy and Joe's a nice guy. And we believe, you know, we're all law-abiding people over here. That's not how it works. <laughs> all around the world and all throughout history is... If the people, that clan who's over there, who's in the neighboring land, takes a look at your land, and they think, you know, they have a lot of cattle over there. Instead of us working on our cattle, what I'll do is I'll send some of my sons and his cousins over and steal their cattle, especially the ones that look really, really good, because then, you know, they'll produce better for us. Let's just do that. 
Today we call it like corporate rating, <laughs> corporate takeovers and stuff like that. It's done by lawyers. <laughs> but back then, you know who did it? Evil men did it. That's how it was. They did it with weapons. And so who tells the land? You're not going to send your mom out there. Because your mom out there, because if you're, the neighboring tribe decides to invade your land to steal from you, they might decide to carry your mom away and make her a slave. Why would you want to send your mom out there or your sister out there? That's why it's a man's job. And why would the men think that, okay, well, hey, women can do this too. You know, we, you know, we want to be all equal opportunity. Hey, sister, get out there. What men are going to think like that? All around the world, if you impose our Western individualistic values upon them, they look at you like you're crazy. They would say, if you're a real man, there is no way you're going to let your sister go out there because you're putting her in harm's way. Real men, they do the work. Real men, they suffer. They break their backs. Real men out there, watch out. And if there needs to be a fight, they're the ones who are going to have to go out there. And so every so now and then, some wicked people over there, especially if you're a minority, they decide, hey, you're easy pickings. And then your guys have to get out there and defend the land. And so part of the job is you might not come home. That's part of the job. You go out there and say, you wake up in the morning and you know every day, hey, you know, it just seems like a perfectly normal day. And then suddenly it's not a normal day. It's suddenly a day you come home and your little brother is dead. And if that's the way it works... Are you going to send your sister out there? Heck no. You are not going to send your sister out there. No man worth his salt is going to let his sister go out there. His sister, his mother, his cousin, there is no way. So it's not because they're simply like oppressive. It's, it's, this is, there's no culture where, you know, where the men tend to have more economic power, where they're perfectly righteous. That's just true. So there is a real insight to the feminist critique of patriarchal cultures. I think we all understand that that's real. The patriarchal cultures regularly um, overlook women and can be oppressive to women. But the idea that they're always oppressive, it's a total ridiculously slanderous lie. It's a completely, it's, it's crazy talk. If you've ever gone to another culture and dealt with something like this, and then you tell them, oh, you're just a bunch of like, you know, you, 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 you men just want to, and you want to make the women as slaves, stay at home and just make them pop out babies or something like that. Try saying that to them. You know what? They're, you're going to really make them really, really mad. You're going to be, so, it's, it's such an arrogant piece of cultural imperialism. Let, let, me, let me use today's word. It's racist. It would be unbelievably grossly racist. And you know who, would, who wouldn't only be offended? It wouldn't just be the men of that other culture would be offended. The women would get really, really mad at you too. And I'm just trying to point out, like, this is life for most of history. And, um, and the reason I just want to point this out is, you know, so just, just, let's just stop for a moment. I, I'm going to calm down a little bit. Um, and this is a little bit about, uh, today I often feel like because we live in an individualist society and I am all for the protection of women. In fact, the Bible is strongly for the protection of women and justice for the widow. You know what it's about? It's about protecting women. It's about protecting vulnerable women. Our culture, we think we're this pro-women culture. I think we're not. <laughs> I think our culture despises women, exploits women, literally kills women. And you know what? That's just a completely normal thing in the world. 
And when God sees that kind of thing, it makes him incredibly mad. And so there are, there are you know, things he put in place which the Bible calls justice. So now let me unpack a little bit more from this story without going into the whole story and how it was back then. So there was a practice. So she, what ends up happening is even though she's not... So, okay, well, let me back up a little bit. If you're a woman, you lose your husband. Now you're in a bad place. Generally, you know who you turn to? You turn to your son. The son will now take over the land and he'll provide for the family. What happens if he dies? Then you get to the other brother. What happens if he dies? Now you're totally in trouble. That's when the Bible is talking about a widow, that's the kind of person the Bible is talking about. A, a woman who's tremendously vulnerable and defenseless in the world. That's the kind of person the Bible is talking about. So in, in the context, if a woman loses her husband, generally she'll probably be okay if she has sons. She doesn't have any son, even one, she's in big trouble. And when the Bible says, protect this widow, that's what the Bible's talking about, okay? But here is this woman who's not even an Israelite, who knows you don't have a son. So you know what she's saying here? It doesn't, it doesn't ex she doesn't explicitly say this. But back then in their culture, everybody would have understood that this is what she's saying. She knows what she's saying. This is incredible. She's saying, you don't have a son. So I'll step in there and I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. That's a daughter-in-law. That's incredible. Everything about her, should she go back to her home? Her culture, her language, her food, to her family? Instead, she'll say, since you don't have a son to protect you, I'll do it. That's what she's saying. So they go back to Israel just fast forward a couple things. So then you know what she has to do? There's a practice. This is part of the justice. What they have to do is it's called gleaning. This is commanded by God. Gleaning is this. On your land, you go out and you pick up all the, you know, you, 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 you go to the harvest, you pick up all your, um, your, your, your crops. Some of the crops, you don't completely get all of it. <laughs> you know, some of it, you don't get, some, you know, some of it is like left behind. You don't get all the apples. <laughs> you don't get all the, you know, the... Um, you know, or whatever it is that you're going to make the wheat to make the bread. You know what God commanded? This is for the fatherless, the widow, this kind of widow, and for the, the outsider. God commands this as part of justice. He says, don't go back and get the rest. That's what he says. Don't go back and get the rest. So they go back to Israel. Naomi is she's more of an older lady now. Someone has to go out there and pick up that, you know, that crop that's been left out there. And you know who decides to do that? Ruth does that. She's an incredible woman. She's probably not the same skin color. She probably speaks their language imperfectly, probably with an accent. So she sticks out. And that's what happens in the story. <laughs> they can see it. And the man who owns the land is a guy named Boaz, B-O-A-Z, Boaz. And he kind of goes, like, who is that? And then you know what he commands? This is really interesting. He says, make sure you leave enough. That's what he says. He's pretty wealthy. And it says he's righteous. You know what when righteous means? It doesn't mean he's a good person. <laughs> it doesn't just mean he's a good person. It says he obeys God's justice. That's what it means. He has eyes for the widow. And I'm sure he can tell that she's not Israel, Israeli. She's not Hebraic. It's probably not too hard to tell. And he says, make sure there's enough for her. Now, let me just quickly fast forward. This will be really weird to the modern mind. <laughs> it's, it's, it's strange. The way they provided for these widows was they had a practice called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. Leveret means the husband's brother. <laughs> That's literally what it means. The husband's brother. And, um, 
And the person who comes in to do that, is there's a name for that figure. That figure is called the kinsman redeemer. The redeemer doesn't mean like salvation redeemer is one who is in trouble. One who is lost. I will go and buy back that person out of trouble. That's really what it means. One who is lost. So one inside of the clan of the kinsmen will step forward to be the kinsman redeemer. And the normal person is supposed to be is the husband's brother. That's the... So in America today, if there's a widow, you know what we do? She goes to the government office and picks up a check. <laughs> and you have to fill out some, you know, forms. I, I make X amount of money, whatever. And we'll say, okay, you qualify and we'll hand you a check. But they know that women need more than a check. They need more than money. You know what they need? They need what I told you last week. They need belonging. They need belonging. So, um, ah, I already went too long. I'm going to have to give you part two. Let me give you part two. Here are the things that women need. Okay? Let me just give you a quick thing. This is for next week. Women need the economics. They need provision. Back then, it was through the land. Today, there's other ways. I think that's actually a good thing. Okay? Um, but there's other things. They need belonging. And you know what the belonging means? The belonging is not just a name. It's that, there's, that means inside of this belonging, I have people to love their purpose. They need to be needed. Everybody needs to be needed. The widow who has no belonging, she's not needed. She's thrown away. How about this? Belonging also means someone will love you. Someone will love you. You know what everybody needs? And definitely women need this too. Is there's this big gaping hole that some person will say, you're with me, I'm with you. I'll have your back and I will know you and I will love you. Belonging is all of that. It's, it's well-being. It's purpose to love and serve others. It's that someone will love you. And I just want to say a little something about this today. In our radically individualistic society, we tend to think if the government cuts you some money, now you can just go out there and get everything else you need. But if you have no belonging, you're in big trouble. I see this on, for a number of you who know that I, uh, you know, I've been on a Native American reservation in ministry there, I see this all the time. There are women who have money, but they have no belonging. You know what they often end up doing? Nobody needs them or nobody wants to be needed by them except maybe their children. And they get exhausted and they get seriously lonely. And then if their boyfriend leaves them, then it's like either I'm going to drink or I'm going to kill myself. This is part of the vulnerability of the widow too. Belonging. And let me just point out these two more things too. They need protection. Physical protection. And how about protection? Sexual protection. The world isn't nice. The world is not a nice place. And if you don't have any belonging, and you're just out there, and the men in the community... What is the chances if you end up out there that everyone, all the men in the community, 100% of them are honorable, good, decent, and kind? What is the chances of that? The chances are zero. <laughs> Whatever culture you go to, the chances are if there's a woman out there and she has no belonging, nobody watches after her, gets her back and protects her, the chances that all the men around her will be kind, honorable, and decent what are the chances that 100% of them are going to be like that? The chances is 0%. That's how the world is. She's vulnerable. She's vulnerable for someone to come in there and rip her off in her, in her finances. She's vulnerable in her loneliness. She's vulnerable to be manipulated 
Romantically, she's certainly vulnerable sexually. That doesn't change one bit. All of that's still the same today. All of it is completely the same. Okay? And this is the story. So, how does, how did Israel do it? And I know it sounds so weird today. <laughs> the way they did it was they gave her a husband. That's how they did it. Who was supposed to step up to be her husband? Well, the former husband's brother. That's what's called leverant marriage. So it's, all, it's connected. The brother's supposed to step up and say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll marry you, and then the inheritance of your land, I'll take care of that land, but you know what? It actually is not going to be my inheritance. It'll be your son. You know, it'll, it'll go it'll be along the line of your family. It's really interesting. So like there's, you know, like my side of the family's land and your side of the family's land, but I will step in and to, to have a son so that you're, it's, it's, it's an incredible sacrifice. You know what often happened? The, the brother would go, no, I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it because it's, it's hard. What if he's not in love with her? What if she's the wrong ethnicity? It's like, I never particularly really wanted to be with a Moabite girl. I never really particularly found them very fetching. You ever think about that? <laughs> That's in the story. It's there. Think about the real humanity of it. So then you know what they do? They go to the next kin. <laughs> the next guy. It's called, that's why it's called the kinsman <laughs> redeemer. Then they go to the next. Do you, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? So just to let you know how the story went, Naomi, she's old now, but Ruth is still young. What she basically says is, Boaz is good. So she, it's this really daring thing. In the middle of the night, she tells him to go ask to be the kinsman redeemer, even though he's not the next in line. And he listens, and he's kind of shocked. And she, and he, she wakes him up, and he's shocked. And, and then he goes, okay. He's a man of his word. So he calls the town together. And then they find out who is the next guy. He goes, do you want, do you, do you, okay, you're, you're, the, you're the next in line, kinsman. <laughs> no. No, until it gets to Boaz. And you know what he says? He says, I will marry Ruth. That's how they did it. And if I say it to you this way, it sounds really kind of freaky and weird in our time because everybody, for us, marriage is about my romance and like who I'm attracted to and it's all about me. <laughs> but if you think about the we and if you think about your cousins, cousins, whatever, and she has all this vulnerability and she needs more than a check. She needs more than money. Wouldn't it be good if somebody who was really, truly just and righteous and loved the Lord would say, I will love you and protect you in a vulnerable world. Now, let me close. There's an extraordinary verse in the Bible. And a lot of people think it's really strange and it doesn't just it just hit you, but it's, it's really the answer to so many things in the Bible. Of course, I've gone too long as usual and I wish I could unpack this. Let's take more, a little more time to unpack this. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's talking about marriage. It's talking about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is verse 31. Ephesians 5, 31. And the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis. It's the fundamental definition of marriage. And then verse 32 says, This mystery is profound. It is. <laughs> and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And, um, okay, I have to say this quickly. <laughs> Somebody going, okay, this is a really cool story. And I know some people out there who are like vulnerable women. And they're not necessarily always widows. I'm going to talk about that next week. I think there are women out there who are widows or like widows. But I want to close this way. Um, if you believe in Jesus today, sometimes I think you could feel like in this world, the world kind of 
doesn't like the people who believe in Jesus. And let me put it a little differently. If you don't have anybody and you don't have any belonging, you're like a widow. How are you like a widow? Are you somebody who you are on your own and you're vulnerable? Your father won't take you in. No husband will take you in. No boyfriend will take you in. No family is there for you. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You're like a widow. You're vulnerable and without belonging in the world. And you know what the, the people who come to find Jesus is? They're the people, they're like a widow. And you know, if you would be a part of the church, the church is described as like a woman, like a bride. And the answer of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't just go, I cut you a check. <laughs> what are all your deepest needs? You know what you need? You need belonging. You need forgiveness. You need understanding. You need purpose. You need a love of someone who will never go away, who will pay the price. Boaz, the other guys, maybe they weren't bad. The Bible isn't saying that Orpah was bad. And it isn't saying that these other guys who de declined were bad. It's saying that Boaz was extraordinary. Boaz took on a cost. Let me just ask you this question. If you ever had a cousin, or let's say you have a neighbor, and they were like a woman like this, can you just imagine someone will say, we won't just cut them a check or just let them come over for Christmas dinners or like Thanksgiving dinners, but like, let's find someone in our family to marry this gal. And if somebody stepped forward to say, I'll do it, what would happen? You're going to do it? Wouldn't we all think that's extraordinary? But there's a people who've walked through life in the world without belonging and they've always fallen down. And they always feel like they're on their own. And somewhere along the line, they hear that there's a person named Jesus who will love them. And we often think of Jesus as the one who died on the cross and shed his blood for my, my sins. It's very individualistic. But today I want to say to you, maybe you and we were really more like a bunch of vulnerable widows in the world. As we go throughout the world, we're looking for someone who will say, I'll pay the cost and I'll be with you and I'll never leave you. One greater than Boaz said, I'll marry her. <laughs> I'll pay the cost. The cost was to be stripped of all his glory on his throne. The cost was a crucifixion. The cost was rejection. All so that he will say, this, this woman, the church, these people who are like broken, rejected, vulnerable, exploited widows in the world, I'll marry them. And I'll be with them. That's our Savior. Greater than Boaz. Was an extraordinary man. But we need even more than an extraordinary man. We need not a kinsman redeemer. We need the ultimate redeemer for the widowhood of our hearts, of our lives. Brothers and sisters, let's, this is the justice we have received, which we could never have earned and never, um, never have <laughs> made happen. And so, Let's live and trust in him and live not for ourselves and have eyes for the widows, for the fatherless, for the vulnerable in our city and those around us. Let's pray. Lord,
I know it sounds a little strange. Even the men, we have widows' hearts. If, um, if my industry gets shipped off to another country, it's like a famine and I'm vulnerable and I have no job and I have no worth and I'm vulnerable in the world. That's how so many men, they're like widows. So many women today says, if uh, I don't find a man by the time I'm 30 or 35, I guess nobody will love me. If your boyfriend dumps you at a particularly bad, you're a little older, you wonder, will there ever be love? Anybody watch after me? It is the plight of our times. And yet, it's very strange to think that the gospel has an answer for that. That to the widowhood of our hearts, in a dangerous world where we could be so vulnerable, you have offered us a promise and then you have fulfilled that promise that there would be one greater than a kinsman redeemer, better than Boaz, the Boaz of all time, the ultimate Boaz, Jesus. So for all of us, as we walk through this world, the Naomi's and Ruth's of this world, thank you that we always have you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for taking care of our sister Jennifer when she was thrown away by her company. Thank you that for the weak and weary, when we get thrown away by our companies or by the world or we don't feel like we have anywhere to turn to, we have you. And may we, as your people, invite the rejected, the vulnerable, the hurting into our family life to be loved by you, Lord Jesus. Be King and Lord, the ultimate Boaz for us, and help us to live in true justice, true mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.